0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am in dialogue today with Professor Natasha Tamar Sharma. We will be discussing her book, Hawaii is My Haven, Race and Indigeniety in the Black Pacific, published by Duke University Press 2021. Natasha is professor of African-American and Asian-American studies at Northwestern University. It is an honor to be in dialogue with you today on the New Books Network. Thank you for your attention.
0: Hey Ari, it's so good to be here. I'm so, I'm so honored to be here and I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you.
1: Thank you. Uh, I couldn't be more honored to have read your book, and if I could recommend it to our listeners even before we begin, um, this book is really incredible, and I really felt um, moved by the stories that were told, and before we even begin with our questions, I wanted to thank you for writing this book, and thank you for everything that went into this book in the silences that Go into any academic book. Um, thank you for everything you put into it, and thank you for the sacrifice that went into this book.
0: Wow, that's that's really moving to me. I mean, after you know a book drops and is in the world, you have this sense of this sense of postpartum in a way, and you have no idea if it's just gone into the void and if anyone's going to pick it up. And to hear that you have read and engaged it really means a lot. So thank you.
1: To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up and were there any formative life events that led you to be inspired by this topic?
0: Wow. That's a big question right there. Uh, we, could, we, could, we could talk all day about that. I do like talking about myself, so I appreciate this question. So um, Ari, I'm speaking with you from Chicago, where I've been for the last 16 years, but I was born and raised in Hawaii, in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, my parents moved there uh, and then I was born and raised there. Uh, my dad is from a village in India and he became a professor and my mom is Russian Jewish from New York. And she moved with my, my dad and they had me and my brother there. And, you know, I went to public school, you know, where you go to school in Hawaii is very important. I'm from Manoa, which is a valley in Honolulu. Uh, on the island of Oahu, where the University of Hawaii is located. And they were professors there. So I grew up there. I went to public schools. Big shout out to Noelani and Stevenson Intermediate and Roosevelt High School. Um, And then I went to college in California in the University of California system. Um, I was, you know, all of my degrees were in anthropology. And then I, you know, um, moved to Amherst for my first job and came to Northwestern 16 years ago. In terms of your question, actually, about what kinds of things motivated, if there were any life experiences early on that motivated my topic on this book, um, which is an ethnography of Black people in Hawaii, um, it really is the, I think, three things. One is growing up in the islands of Hawaii and how that shaped me and the dynamics that I talk about demographically and politically in the islands, which is majority- People of color, a lot of mixed folks like myself. Uh, The second thing is moving to California, you know, to the continental US, where people called me a woman of color, a term that people didn't really use in the islands, you Mm -hmm. know, and we didn't think of each ourselves in a black and white binary. And then the third thing is being in black studies, being in African American studies for the last 16 years. So all of these things combined have really uh, motivated me to write this ethnography of black folks in Hawaii
1: what motivated you to write this book and what do you hope readers will take away from it?
0: Yeah. I mean, writing this book, you know, Ari, it really brought me home in a lot of ways. I always thought that I was going to um, start my dissertation and write it on mixed race people in Hawaii. And I didn't end up doing that. So my dissertation and my first book was actually about South Asian American hip hop artists. So with this second book, it really did bring me home. I could go back home to Hawaii. And that was really important to me just at my, my life stage, having a family, I wanted to be able to go home. So I created a research project around that. The second home that, you know, this really illustrates though, is my home in black studies. Um, I'm definitely, you know, identify as an Asian Americanist and I'm in Asian American studies, but it's all of what I've learned from my colleague's Uh, in Black Studies uh, at Northwestern, but also in the field of Black Studies that I really wanted to bring these two homes. One is an intellectual political home of Black Studies and the other is my birth home of Hawaii. So to bring them together and tell the story of Black men and women who live in Hawaii, uh, who are not part of the military. What are their experiences? Why have they been erased from depictions, both tourist depictions of Hawaii, but also everyday local conceptions of who belongs in the islands and who is thought to come from outside. So that's what really motivated me. Actually, the last thing I'll say is that it, what motivates me is what's motivated all of my work. And that is really, um, You'll notice, you know, if you look at the things that I've published, I really decenter whiteness. Um, there's sort of a, a you know a framework of white supremacy, but I'm very interested in charting out ethnographically inter um, interminority relations. I'm very concerned about interminority racism between Asian and Black folks, between Black folks and Native Hawaiians. So I want to historically and ethnographically analyze what you know historically led to these conditions of animosity and tension and division and then the the bulk of my work tries to look at how do people kind of mess with these divisions mess with these you know racial and colonial divisions to actually form alliances and solidarities um so that is really the the political impetus uh, behind that and being in ethnic studies allows me to state that explicitly
1: in light of your book's ideas and research. In what ways can indigenous studies and race studies collaborate more fruitfully than they have in the past? What would your recommendations be?
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that question. That's actually a central conversation that this book is really trying to be a part of. And it's really amazing if I can slightly reframe the categories that you used in that conversation in that question. Um, This really is a book that tries to engage black studies in conversation with native studies. Yes. Right. And so black studies as race studies and indigenous studies. Um, And, you know, there is just a number of amazing books that are coming out about these topics now um and so this book is really trying to contribute to that and there are some tensions between black and native studies in terms of something that folks have called an impasse whether it's a political impasse or the ideas that the liberation of one group should come first and then be followed by the liberation of other groups or an impasse in arguing which group is the most oppressed you know or a chronological order of oppression um In a lot of these works, they really kind of describe Black and Native people as two distinct groups, right? That there are Native people, and then there are Black people or people of African descent. Uh, And they're seen as inhabiting different geographies, right? Um, And they're seen as having different histories, separate histories that might intertwine, but that are ultimately separate. And so what my, you know, turning to Hawaii, what it does is there's a huge Indigenous presence and population, you know about 20% of Hawaii is native Hawaiian it's not the same as the continental us where work in black and native studies still kind of can minimize the the presence of indigenous people um so i I'm trying to contribute an ethnographic uh, kind of depiction of Black and Native relations. Um, one, to do that in a in a you know, very um, demographically significant indigenous site of Native Hawaiians. Uh, also, it's a place, you know, Hawaii, where there's only about 3% of the population is Black. So it's a very different kind of context than the rest of the continental US. Um, And I also try to do this ethnographically. I think a lot of the literature in Black and Native studies has been through a literary analysis, um, through analysis of science fiction, um, through analysis of art and of, of history. And so I want, you know, as someone who's sort of concrete and in the now, I want to know, what does this look like on the ground? And just to, you know, end this answer to this really important question, this is why the conversations that I had over the last 10 years with people who are both you know, Black and Hawaiian, so they're both Native Hawaiian, they're usually their mothers were Native Hawaiian and their fathers were Black, usually African-American, but also African and Caribbean. Um, they really challenged these, these notions of these separate groups of Black and Native or race and indigeneity, and they cross these categories and these communities.
1: What changes would you like to see made to pedagogy in light of your book, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the likelihood of such changes actually being implemented?
0: Well, that's a beautiful question. That uh, it kind of makes me emotional thinking about that. Um, yeah, I think we need changes in society. Absolutely, that's what motivates my work. I think that there is inequality and things are really dire for particular groups. Um, pedagogically speaking, you know, there's two ways I would answer that. One is that I'm hoping that an ethnography of Black life in the Pacific can contribute to this growing area, right? That's called the Black Pacific. And that that we don't just think about Black popular culture crossing the Pacific, like how reggae is popular, and that we understand that Black political thought has been very critical in the Pacific through, right, the circulation of Black power ideologies, um, or that identifications with Blackness or as Black in West Papua, you know, or in in Australia, but that actual Black men and women, members of the African diaspora exist in, in, in the Pacific is a really important expansion and contribution to our understandings of the Black Atlantic and the significance of the Middle Passage and uh, enslavement. So pedagogically in two ways, one across, you know, the U S in black studies programs. Um, I want folks to think about, um, shifting our attention to the Pacific and seeing what is happening there. What does the Pacific offer black life, right? That's one of the central questions of, of my book, but pedagogically also in terms of, am I optimistic or pessimistic in what should change? My focus is on Hawaii. And what I found you know, by doing this ethnographic work is that I got to reflect on my own education in Hawaii. And I said, I went to public schools, but I don't think it's much different even in private schools like the one that Obama went to, Punahou, where we're really not taught about African-American history significantly at all. So a lot of people in Hawaii don't know about African-American history, the history of enslavement, and we don't recognize uh, Black peers that are in our schools, you know. So pedagogically, I am optimistic if folks read the book and see that we really need to create, you know, a, a much more uh, significant and uh, in-depth treatment of Black history uh, and an understanding of that in our in our schools, and particularly at the college level. So the University of Hawai'i, does not have enough Black studies professors. Uh, it generally has one. And I think having a more significant investment in that is really critical.
1: How, could, how can scholars of other regions or of other area studies benefit from knowing about the Black Pacific? In my case, I, I'm, my home fields would be Jewish studies, Israel studies, maybe Middle Eastern studies, how could someone in a fields rather different benefit from the insights you're providing about the black pacific
0: i really like that question you know i often joke or present myself as a hindu so i you know people don't immediately recognize me as jewish because i look brown, I look South Asian, I look Muslim looking. And so people, you know, presume that Jewish people are white. And so they don't recognize non-white Jewish folks. So I'm Jewish raised in Hawaii in a relatively, you know, atheist family. But, you know, Diaspora is very um, a large framework in a lot of fields, including Jewish studies, right? And in my field of Asian American studies, diaspora is a really central paradigm um, of oppression and trauma and, and migration and movement, some of which is voluntary and much of which is involuntary. And I think when we think about African-American studies, um, and I want us to think about that term too, I'm in the department of African-American studies, but should it be called black studies or black diaspora studies? I think what this project can contribute is a recognition of black folks and particularly African Americans, as immigrants to Hawaii. So thinking about diaspora, um, I think people use the term often to refer to Black folks as native-born minorities, right, that they're born in the United States and they're minorities. Um, If you think about Hawaii as I do, as a colony of the United States, then Black folks in Hawaii, the vast majority of whom are not born in the islands but move there, uh, many of the people that I talk to move as adults, mostly from the continental US, but also from Asia, Europe, the Caribbean, and Africa. These are migrants, right? They're immigrants. And in a lot of ways, they're going to a different country. And so what I'm saying is that we can really expand the way we think about Black diaspora, and that can speak to fields like Jewish studies um, and Asian American studies and questions about voluntary, involuntary migration, questions about What does Black agency and Black life look like? Uh, Not in the Middle Passage, where it's the movement from West Africa to the Caribbean to the U.S., um, but from the United States going west, right, uh, to a place that's sort of Asia-proximate, And a lot of the students, I spoke to a number of, um, a a large number of Black college students who were attending the University of Hawaii, uh, and they said that they wanted to go to Hawaii because they were really drawn to Asian studies, which the University of Hawaii really features very strongly. So thinking about the motivations that make uh, or inspire Black folks from Compton, from White Plains, New York, from Chicago, from Georgia. These are you know, all places that the folks I talked to came from and many, many more. What makes them go to Hawaii might not be uh, the things that we immediately think of. So again, they were very interested in manga and anime and they played video games and they wanted to learn Japanese. And so they didn't want to go to college in Japan, but they wanted to go somewhere familiar. So they went to the University of Hawaii to major in Asian studies. So again, what I'm giving that detail is to show that, you know, I think we think about African Americans as primarily native born minorities, when such a huge uh, proportion of Black folks in in the United States came as immigrants from the Caribbean and from Africa. Similarly, I think we can think about African uh, or members of the African diaspora as immigrants across the Pacific. And and I think that attention to that would be very fascinating in terms of our conceptions of blackness globally. Um, is there the existence of anti-black racism globally? Um, what does it mean to be a black person in a place like Hawaii where they never um, enslaved, you know they, they did not take part in the slave trade. It was not a slave society. Any person who arrived in the islands would arrive as a free person. And so a number of uh, formerly enslaved people or people who are escaping enslavement from the Boston and New York area went on ships and ended up in Hawaii where then they were free. So I think it expands our ideas about Blackness, diasporas, um, and the relation among these things.
1: In what ways is a Black Pacific worldview differ different from a Black Atlantic worldview?
0: Oh, that's really tough. I mean, the first, my my gut reaction is to say, I can't zero in on a Black Pacific worldview because I mm-hmm. imagine that my answer would mean responding to how Black people in the Pacific share a worldview. And I don't think that they do. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're asking might be more of an intellectual or regional uh, response I think what we find in the Pacific is that there are different valences and meanings of Blackness that enter, uh, that kind of enter the way that we conceptualize Blackness as it's been dominated by the United States, by scholarship in the United States, and by the Black American experience that really foregrounds the Middle Passage. In the Pacific, there are already existing, before colonial times, notions of Blackness. and so, so for instance, um, Joyce Polanyi Warren is a scholar of English at the University of Hawaii and she is studying the meanings of po, P-O. It's a Hawaiian term to refer to the originary darkness from which life sprung. And that darkness was seen as something to be regaled and was seen as a sign of strength. Blackness in the Pacific also Uh, resonates in terms of the colonial divisions of the Pacific into a region that was made of Polynesia, Micronesia, and Melanesia, the last one referring to the the phenotypical looks of people in this region, the melanin, right, Melanesia, um, their dark skin, their curly hair. And so when Black folks from the United States go to the Pacific, they, they contend with these pre-existing, pre-colonial and multiple levels of notions of Blackness that is not only informed by enslavement from West Africa to, to the Americas.
1: What contribution does your book make to our understanding of trauma?
0: Wow, um, I like this question because the book does for me bring up emotions. You know, I find that ethnography, I mean, maybe that's silly to say, maybe, All scholars' work makes them emotional, but the book does make me emotional because it's about everyday people who shared their lives with me. And actually, when you ask this question, what contribution does this book make to our understanding of trauma? It makes me think of my interviews, particularly with women, particularly with mixed Black women in Hawaii. I'm thinking of an interview with a Black Hawaiian woman and an interview with a Black Okinawan woman, and they cried. A lot in our interviews. And so there's this kind of utterance of individual trauma um, that I was not looking for and was not trying to extract out of folks who I've had now 10-year relationships with, right? So there's, but there's these um in the in our conversations, folks would tell me of their traumatic life experiences. And for Black locals or Black folks who are born and raised in Hawaii, the vast majority of whom are mixed, meaning their parents. Uh, One parent was black and the other was Okinawan or Japanese or Hawaiian or Samoan or Korean. Um, They told me their individual life stories that sometimes was very traumatic for them. So a black Hawaiian woman, for instance, recalls that she was abused by her grandmother very harshly, that all of her cousins were mixed, but they were mixed Hawaiian and white. And she's Hawaiian and Black, and she was ostracized. And a Black Hawaiian man said the same thing. He was always <clears throat> targeted for being the Black cousin, the dark cousin, the, the tall cousin. Uh, but, you know, people spoke about abuse that they faced. All of the Black locals talked about how they were called the N-word, and sometimes from their family members. So there's individual trauma, and, um, but that links to, if you talk to enough people, you realize that this is not an individual issue. It's not, it's not only Hawaiian families that treated Black children like that. It was also Japanese families that uh, expressed anti-Black racism toward their children saying, don't stay out in the sun too much. Don't bring home a Black man. You know, What does it mean to be Black and Korean raised by your Korean mom who tells you do not bring home a Black man when you look identifiably Black? That's very emotional. Wow. The trauma, right? That's really... Tough and the, the trauma part comes. I mean, the, all of this is trauma, traumatic in a way of this utterance. But a, a few things now I'm like wanting to talk about this, if you don't mind, Ari. One is that these folks had not been asked these questions before, people had not talked to them about this wow. and about race and about being black. And there's a real distance from a sense of knowledge about what the black experience is for most of the black locals because they didn't grow up with the black community. So it was very new for them to talk about this. Um, the second thing, and um, the second thing is that I noticed over time by talking to so many people that these were patterns of racism, which lead to patterns of kind of an ambivalent feeling toward blackness. That anti-blackness is traumatic, and it exists in Hawaii, but there are no words for it because nobody asks, and we don't have words for it because nobody talks that much about Hawaii as a place of racism or we'd also don't use race as a paradigm. We use ethnicity, multiculturalism, multiracialism, right? The, the last thing I'll say about what does this book uh, contribute to our understanding of trauma um, is to switch to another category of folks that I spoke to. And these are people who are members of the African diaspora, mostly professionals in medicine, law, you know, uh, real estate who moved to Hawaii as adults, and they come from across the United States. What they're saying is that they are fleeing trauma. They're fleeing the continental U.S. as a site of trauma, by which they mean police violence, surveillance, uh, structural racism that has closed opportunities for their advancement. And they come to Hawaii and what they find is a place of less trauma. That's why the title of the book is Hawaii is my Haven. So you have the simultaneous experience of Hawaii as a place of anti-black racism that is unacknowledged, but also Hawaii as a place that is free from that pressure. So the last thing I'll say about this is that for instance, an identifiably black man with dreadlocks from New York said that in Hawaii, um, there's less pressure. And that pressure he's talking about is systemic state violence, police violence. And so that's the site of trauma is one that people are leaving and they're coming to the Pacific as a place of possibility.
1: Can you explain the significance of the image on your book's title page? What does it signify? What does it mean?
0: Yeah, I love, I'm very happy, you know, if people just, uh, Look at or pick up or possibly skim through or even read the book just based on the cover. I'm so pleased with the cover. It features Kamaka Kehau Fernandez. And I speak about him with his real name, unlike all the other folks in the book, um, because he's a musician. And I came across this image of Kamaka Kehau as a series of photos that he had taken of him by um, a local photographer, Kenna Reed. And I, you know, it was just about time to like finalize the book uh, with Duke for publication. And I didn't like the the examples that I had in front of me. And I came across these images of him on Facebook. We're Facebook friends. We we communicate all the time, you know, over the last 10 years. And I said, Kamaka, would would I be able to use this really evocative image of you? He's sort of in the water. He has the, uh, it's called a bombax, pink bombax flower lay around him in pink. He has his dark skin. His eyes are closed. And there's pink flowers with this turquoise background and his dark skin where he's identifiably black. And he looks like he's in bliss. And then the title is Hawaii is my haven. And it really signifies, rather than those images that I was given of Black Lives Matter protests in Hawaii, it really signifies Hawaii as this alternative place where there is an expansive expression of Blackness. Not that there isn't, you know, of course, there's multiple modes and possibilities of expansive expressions of Blackness all over the world. But what I'm trying to say is particularly in 2020, 2021, 2022, during Black Lives Matter protests, there's a different kind of discourse happening and a different life experience that's happening in Hawaii. And I think the, the, the cover really illustrates that.
1: What is kuleana? Can you describe the meaning of this term for those who are unfamiliar with it?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, um, a previous part of our conversation when I said that I, that this book brings home home in a lot of ways for me. One is cause I'm born and raised in Hawaii and the other is cause I'm in black studies. And so it's the marriage of the two. Um, but, you know, um, I am not a lot of people are very interested about me doing this research because it's an ethnography of black people and on um, black Hawaiian relations in Hawaii. And I'm not black. I'm not of African descent and I'm not native Hawaiian. So I am Indian from India and white. And so people are very interested in, in my positionality. How did you do research and why do you do research on black people and what right do you have or what do you have to say about native Hawaiian issues? And I'm very comfortable with having that conversation that is completely completely fine. Uh, And a lot of growing up in Hawaii as a non Hawaiian person, I've nonetheless, especially through this project, been very indebted to Native Hawaiian scholars and activists and their concepts that they've used to really um, advance questions of Hawaiian sovereignty. And so kuleana is a very, it's a native Hawaiian concept. And just to clarify, native Hawaiian means people who are indigenous to Hawaii. It means that they can trace themselves genealogically back to this site before colonization. So it's not the same as saying a New Yorker, right? Or someone from Illinois. So kuleana is a Hawaiian term and it has multiple meanings. People think about kuleana as um, rights or responsibility or duty. And I engage a number of Hawaiian scholars, uh, Hawaiian feminists who use this term kuleana, and it's a real motivation behind the book. And it is, what is my kuliāna? What is my responsibility or my duty uh, to Hawaii? What is my kuleana, my responsibility to Black studies? What is my kuleana to where I live and, and to addressing what is fucked up about the world? And so this book to me, I don't want to say it's a gift because that's a little obnoxious to say, but this book is part of my kuleana for all of Hawaii did for me growing up. And so kuleana is the notion of one's rights and responsibilities and two main points about it. And I think that this is an indigenous epistemology that is really ethical. And that is to understand and locate one's positionality. So understanding who one is to other people and to the place that we're from but then to act on it. And I think that's really key. I don't just want words. I I mean, like, you know, I always give this example, like my husband can say that he's going to take out the trash and he sees the trash and he recognizes that the garbage is full, but I want the action to happen. Right. So, so take out the trash. Don't just recognize it and see it. So kuleana is about recognizing one's positionality and then acting ethically upon it.
1: Can you comment on the significance of the Massey cases of the 1930s and the Didi cases of the 2000s? What transpired in these cases and can you tell their stories for us?
0: Yeah. So I um, draw upon, you know, there's been a lot of work on the Massey cases and the Didi cases um, and David Stannard's work on the Massey cases and on John Rosa's work. Um, and I connect these two ideally, you know, to tell it, it, in a way to highlight and foreground that race and racism um, is not a unique or particular experience, um, particularly tied to people of African descent in Hawaii. These two cases really illustrate how race and racism, much of which is imported from the United States through the military, through the legal system, uh, through racist stereotypes of of racialized masculinity, um, move uh, move across the ocean to Hawaii. So the Massey case... Is really about the Massey cases were in the 1930s, and they drew national attention. And it was essentially um, a white military, a white navy family's lynching of a uh, native Hawaiian man. Uh, and you know they did not, they did not, you know, there was no, no punishment for that. And um, and the kinds of modes of Racial thinking that the white military has brought with itself as a as a as a form of occupation and colonization in Hawaii has um, transpired to affect the way that people not from Hawaii view Hawaiians and other people of color in Hawaii, Uh, a lot of the tropes are uh, reminiscent of black criminality. And so um, Kaha Hawaii was the Hawaiian man who was lynched, murdered uh, by by members of this white Navy family Um, and they got off. Right. And so in in the 2000s, what you have the Didi case is um, that there was a security personnel who was in Hawaii um, for an economic forum. And he had been before he came, you know, he was armed and he, he, before he came, he had been warned about the natives. Right. And so he had jet lag, he partied all night. He went to a McDonald's, which is one that many people growing up, we've all been to this McDonald's in, in Waikiki. And he had an altercation with, uh, uh, with a, with a young, uh, local, um, part Hawaiian and, um, And he, within this video footage and very quickly within, you know, a minute or two, uh, he shot and killed this Hawaiian boy, uh, Colin Elderts. And, um, you know, there's a link between the two and Chris Didi was not, um, you know, he's had several trials and he has not served time. And so there's this way that, um, there's a few things going on here, okay? One is that the U.S., imports its racialist thinking that is founded within um, the U.S. black and white framework uh, and white racism. Um, It it imports that through the U.S. military, through U.S. missionaries, through U.S. business, through U.S. education systems, through the legal system. And notions about black people uh, become transposed upon brown people in Hawaii and across the Pacific. And we see that with the more recent murders of a South African in Hawaii a couple of years ago by a police officer and by a Micronesian boy, a 16-year-old boy by a police officer. There's the same tropes of criminalized racialized Blackness onto these different bodies. Um, And so what I'm trying to argue here is, or at least illustrate by using these cases, is that, you know, um, US imperialism has crossed the Pacific. And with it, it's not just an occupying force where there are, you know, so much of Hawaiian land is not accessible to Native Hawaiians because it's military owned. So 25% of the island of Oahu is owned by the US military. Um, but that the Pacific is a testing ground for nuclearism and a staging ground for wars in the Middle East. Um, But also with these military folks come these ideologies uh, uh, that are formed from the black and white experience in the United States that get transposed onto Pacific Islanders and that lead to often fatal consequences. So race is not unique to black folks in Hawaii. Race and racism is a structural part of the Hawaiian Island Society. It's just that we don't use those terms. And so we often don't have that lens, but African-Americans who move to the islands from the continental US, they often in our conversations say, oh yeah, of course, Hawaii is a society you know, based on race. It's not black and white. They'll say it's like Japanese on top and like Micronesian Samoans and Filipinos on the bottom, but it's still a racially organized society. So it's black folks who are from the United States, whether they're from white suburban areas or from black cities, they move to Hawaii and they bring a racial consciousness and awareness and they see structural forms of racism And this often leads to court cases that they will uh, advocate uh, on behalf of um, racist experiences in the medical field, um, racist experiences that Black kids growing up in high schools have. And so that's a very different kind of lens that they have than Black locals and locals in general.
1: How did the... Black role in the U.S. armed forces shape the ways that local Hawaiians perceived Black's presence on the islets?
0: Yeah, this is such an important question. Okay, so I spent time over the last 10 years um, trying to interview anybody of African descent that I could identify. So I, I was racially profiling. I asked friends and family to let me know if they knew anybody who was Black who was in Hawaii, but not as a tourist and not as part of the U.S. military. So what this ethnography tries to do is actually show uh, what is the experiences and perspectives of Black civilians. And the reason I wanted to do this is part of the Black Pacific and the way that Blackness across the Pacific has been studied is so dominated by World War II and Black men in the U.S. military. So a lot of focus on how black soldiers experience life in Micronesia or in Hawaii or um, the children of black soldiers and Japanese women or the children of, you know, the black Amerasians, Afro Amerasians in Asia. And so I wanted to know what is civilian life like? And this is really critical because um, the, the conflation Right. Or the connection between black is military is so dominant in Hawaii so that it comes up in every single interview, no matter what. And these are you know, I did speak to hundreds of people and they all have to navigate through different cultural cues, whether they wore their hair in dreadlocks, you know, to show like, okay, I'm not in the military because of the strict code on hair. Right. Uh, Or if they wore clothes in a certain way or if they. Um, conducted themselves in uh, a way that marked them as being local through the way they wore their clothes, slippers, right aesthetics, the way they spoke if they spoke pidgin, and they do these things whether they're from Hawaii or not in order to mark I am not in the military because when people see black folks, the presumption is they're in the U.S. military because the the you know the majority of black people in Hawaii are there because of the military. So what happens is that leads to the presumption that Black people are only part of a US occupying force, that Black people are only there as part of militarism, what Teresa Teva and Bernadette Gonzalez call militarism, which is either the military or tourism, right? And that they're only here temporarily, and thus there are no Black locals. And what this does is it evacuates the real experiences and the actual presence of Black people who are from Hawaii or who live in Hawaii. And this book is really trying to shed light on there are Black residents They are not all in the military. Some of them are critical of the U.S. occupation of Hawaii. Okay, now what are their lives like? So the military is a huge vector uh, through which Black people have been coming to the islands, preceding the military in World War II and even the Buffalo Soldiers around 1913, through which Black military soldiers came. Preceding that was the whaling industry and a lot of Black sailors came. Uh, And so... And, and after the US military, or right now, during the arrival of black servicemen and women who usually stay in three-year rotations, right? They don't, and they don't necessarily integrate into local life. It's a very cordoned off base life. Um, you also have um, the, the US, um, the University of Hawaii is another vector through which black folks are coming. And through that, that's also predominantly black men who are coming, whether it's sailing and whalers, or whether it's the US military, or whether it's the University of Hawaii, which is recruiting black um, athletes, particularly for football, you see this disproportionate migration of black men rather than black women. So overall, what I'll say is, even though this is an ethnography of black civilians in Hawaii, because I want to show what black life uh, looks like that is not always necessarily part of the military occupation, all of the folks that I talked to had to navigate the presumption people had that they were only there as part of the military.
1: In chapter two, you tell the stories of Tommy, Walton, and Colin. Can you tell us about them? How do they reflect Black Okinawan, Black Samoan, and Black Hawaiian experiences respectively?
0: Yeah, thank you for that question. That's I like that. It's making me smile. You could probably hear that uh, because it's illuminating not just theories, but my you know actual people who are yeah. alive and who shared their stories. And every story is so unique. So I'm also glad you asked about those three people, because some of the names that emerge, I have to actually go back to the book and read the context to remember who I named what, because I use pseudonyms, you know, and Hawaii is a very small place. And most of the interviews took place on the island of Oahu, you know, Mm -hmm. and this is, you know, an island that's like 44 miles by 30 miles, you know, it's not large. And so if I gave enough identifying marks, then people would know who these folks were. And it's really important ethically as an ethnographer for pseudonyms. Um, So let's see, Tommy is uh, a Black Okinawan I spoke to. Uh, I probably knew of Tommy through, probably through uh, somebody else, Walt, I think. Walt, who's a Black Samoan. Uh, And I probably knew of Walt through what was the last name that you said?
1: Tommy Walton Colin.
0: Through Colin. Cause I changed Colin's name several times over the course of writing. Um, so I think I learned of each of them from one another. These are a black Okinawan man, uh, a black, uh, Samoan man and a black Hawaiian man. And I think they all knew one of, of one another. And this is not, um, a coincidence. They were all inspired by hip hop. And when they were growing up, they were seen as different because, you know, they had a Black father. Um, And um, the way that they found, you know, a really compelling expression of their budding, growing Black masculinity and also a way that resonated with them in in their ability to identify as Black within a context of not having Black family was through hip hop, which came to the islands in the 1990s. So uh, Tommy grew up in... um, in, in uh, Wahiawa, he grew up, you know, went to high school near some military bases, and he is kind of, you know, identifiably dark, and so people always presumed that he was a military child, that he was the child of military And he's not. And it was very important to him to uh, have people know that, no, his father, you know, was a black man who came to to Hawaii and his mother was local Okinawan and they were not in the military. And, you know, he fell in love with hip hop. And so his mom got him a high school gift, which was to fly him out to New York, the home and the birthplace of hip hop after he graduated high school. And it just really resonated with him. And he came home, back to the islands and he was a graffiti artist and he's a rapper. And so you can see this way that hip hop really spoke to who he was and he was navigating being black and Asian. And growing up in high school, he said that people were always confused by him because he would hang out with the black kids and he would hang out with the Asian kids. And these are the kinds of boundaries that I'm saying that this book is trying to speak to. When you look at not just mixed folks, but if you look at mixed race folks and other people who break these categories that are so sedimented, we see that people are are kind of messing with these boundaries all the time. And so while it was confusing to people why this Black-looking youth was hanging out with the Asians, for him, he was also Asian. So he's hanging out with his, his people in both circumstances. Walt is amazing. Walt is so... I'm still remembering exactly where we met. We had a meal. Uh, it was not in, it was not in Honolulu. It was past the airport and it was kind of like at a diner and I met him for the first time and he's just so loquacious and so smart and he has a master's degree and he wants to educate folks about, um, about black people in Hawaii, he's trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do. And he has a master's degree, and he's black and Samoan. Uh, He did have a black stepfather. So unlike many of the folks from Hawaii who had black fathers, uh, the fathers often were not there because the relationships didn't work, or the fathers went back to the, you know, the continental U.S., Walt did have access to Black family and he w- he spent a lot of time in D.C. with his father. And so he knew a lot of Black cultural references from Motown and soul music and hip hop that many of the other Black local folks did not. And so he has a very kind of firm understanding of himself as a Black man uh, and as a Samoan man. And he wants to educate people about that. So he is very unique in that because of his kind of exposure to um, you know multiple modalities of black life and to black you know male role models he has a very firm sense and understanding of of what being African- American is even as he also identifies as someone and the last person I'll talk about is Colin a uh, wonderful entrepreneur he grew up uh, in his Hawaiian mother's, home on Hawaiian homestead land. So these are lands and homes that are reserved for people of Hawaiian ancestry. And there's a very long list, a wait list that can take years and years for Native Hawaiians to have access to land on their own, in their own country. He grew up in a Hawaiian community, and he was one of a number of Black Hawaiians. And uh, he did not ever meet his father. Uh, So he, you know, really grew up understanding Hawaiian you know, culture, local culture. He went to public school. Um, But then he really started to identify and embrace being Black Hawaiian, again, because of hip hop. And these were all folks who were around the same age. And he ran with uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson for a while, meaning they were all youth who were running around the streets of Honolulu, embracing hip hop. And Dwayne the Rock Johnson is Black Samoan, you know. And so a lot of these folks were, you know, young Polynesians, Um, who came to um, a coming of age where they embrace Black masculinity, particularly through um, rapping, graffiti, uh, those kinds of things. And so these folks know one another, and they are Black locals, and they grew up locally, uh, and their stories have been completely overlooked, even in narratives of Black history in Hawaii, which tends to really feature a very kind of respectability politics narrative that begins with Anthony Allen, who is uh, an escaped enslaved man who arrived in the 1800s, who became an advisor to the king, uh, all the way to Obama. And what these narratives do is it only sees Black folks as being respectable professional class that come from elsewhere. So, folks like Colin, folks like Walt, folks like Tommy, their stories are not told as part of Black Hawaii. And I think that their perspectives are. Not just interesting, they're like important, you know, and they're 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 really they're really rich, you know. So I tried to incorporate, you know, as much of their stories as I could without giving them away.
1: If you don't mind me asking this as a follow-up, how did they relate to success stories of African American professionals as yeah. human beings? Did they feel resentful and envious? Did they feel proud? Did they feel like they were blocked from achieving the things that other African-American professionals were able to achieve? Um, I'm curious how they would have thought about other people having achieved levels of success that for various reasons, they were blocked from attaining.
0: Yeah. I mean, so the way that my mind is going when I am listening to your question is I'm looking at these communities as they exist right now in Hawaii, sort of a professional middle-class black community. So there's no geographic location of black life in the islands outside of say military bases or black churches. So people live in different neighborhoods and especially black locals, they live in their mother's neighborhoods or that's where they grew up. And, and the thing is, is that, um, I'm not so sure that Black locals, especially those who are mixed, I don't think they were thinking about Black professionals at all, Uh, you know, and and the Black professional community that's growing up, you know, growing in Hawai'i, these are sort of ex-military folks who end up living in Hawai'i, these are former professors these are lawyers, you know, and they have community gatherings and they're creating black organizations like the Lynx or like the NAACP. The folks that I was talking about that were saying, you know, Colin and Tommy and, and Walt, they didn't grow up really paying attention or even knowing that that was a completely different circle. It was irrelevant to them. And so um, there's actually a documentary on black life in the Pacific called They Followed the Trade Winds. I think that's the name of it by Miles uh, Jackson, and you know I talked to Miles Jackson after, and he he's uh, a former dean uh, at the University of Hawaii who came as a black military person in Hawaii, and you know I said the story is amazing that you show this is the only documentary about black people in Hawaii from Alice Ball to uh, to to Obama, but I said where are the black locals? And he, and you know he said that he had a really hard time having Black local kids or people take part in his project. So what I'm trying to say, Ari, is that I don't think these Black local youth were even thinking about Black professionals. It just wasn't in their realm. They were local boys growing up, they loved hip hop. Like they wanted to make it like that. They had, you know, one, one black Hawaiian recorded the first hip hop album CD that ever came out of the islands. Right. So they weren't really paying attention to that. And they did not identify firmly with a black community. They were raised in their Hawaiian communities that they thought of themselves as local kids who liked hip hop. So it was not an aspiration and it was not a form of resentment and it was not a desire for them. They were living their own lives. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Cool. Thanks cool. for thanks for that. Along similar lines in the same chapter you tell the stories of Nicole, Jenny and Kelly. What did their stories teach us? Can you share with us who they were, what they said about themselves to you and why their personal narratives are important?
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm going to be a little tricky and and pretend to talk about those specific names but I'm gonna probably talk about different women that I spoke to. Um, Nicole is a black Hawaiian woman who like, um, I can't remember the names, like Colin, also grew up on Hawaiian homestead. And Hawaiian homestead land is not in one part of the island. It's in different areas of the island. So she grew up in a different area than Colin did. And she grew up identifiably black. So, so so people would read her as being a black woman. And, you know, what's interesting that one thing that stands out is that she would do a lot of, um, you know, professional work on the telephone, answering questions, uh, about, about in her work. And she said that she, she cultivated a voice where when people met her, they would be, they would feel a sense of disjuncture or being fooled or like, wait, I didn't know you look like that. You don't sound like that she had been taught by her grandmother and a lot of people in Hawaii are raised by their grandparents that she had four strikes against her. One was the neighborhood she was from. One was that she was black. One was that she was Hawaiian. And one was that she was a woman. And so it was really important that she grow up not speaking pidgin. And that's like a local you know, Creole, like a local dialect, right. A local way of speaking English, um, that a lot of the black men did speak. A lot of the black men spoke pidgin. It's a form of it, you know, possibly a form of expressing black masculinity. Whereas, you know, she was taught, you need to speak proper English and you need to come across as, um, educated and professional. Um, the thing that I'll say about all of these women is that, um, You know, life in the islands as a Black woman, and I'm not speaking for myself because I'm not a Black woman, but from the people that I talk to, is very challenging. So, for instance, one would talk about how all her best friends and all of them grew up with these multiracial peer groups. So they didn't just befriend Black, other Black youth. There weren't any or many. They had Filipino best friends and best friends who were Japanese and white. And, you know, one woman says growing up, it was hard in such a beach oriented place because all her friends had wash and go hair. They could just go to the pool, go to the beach and just go. But, you know, as a woman who had, you know, uh, very curly hair and she felt that she had, she couldn't just wash and go. So to go to the beach or for it to rain was very, um, significant for her. She had to manage her hair. And so a lot of black, uh, women in Hawaii, this might sound, um, extreme a lot of black women in Hawaii they leave uh including those who are from there so like I mentioned a lot of the vectors that bring black folks to the islands are male dominant dominant whether it's the whaling industry in the 1800s whether it's plantation work in the 1900s the military and University of Hawaii athletics it's predominantly male but even for black locals who are both women and men it's often the sisters that leave uh, because they feel that they're not going to find uh, romance in the islands and that island life is not is not easy, especially for uh, identifiably black uh, women. Another,
1: another person I'd like to ask you about is Nino. Can you tell us about him? Who is he? Why is he important?
0: Yeah. I hope I have Nino right. Cause I think I used a different name in, in other ways. Like, so yeah, these folks are like multiply blind, you know, in terms of the names I gave, even though some people are like, is that me? Is that not, not, is that me? But, Oh, I think I know who that is. Uh, is this Nino who's from the South, from the U.S. South? Uh, I believe Nino is one of the older people that I talk to. Not the oldest, but he's an older generation than me. And I'm uh, I'm almost 50. So he was an older generation. You know, Nino's really fascinating. He's from the U.S. South. He's Black and, and Cherokee. Uh, he's from Georgia. And he experienced life in Georgia and, you know, in, in the Jim Crow South. And he moved to, to the Northwest. Okay. He moved to the dreary Northwest. And I was like, why did you come to Hawaii? Like what brought you here? And he's a blues musician. Uh, You know, he, he, he plays around, um, around, around the Island of Oahu. And I said, why did you come here from, from the Northwest? And he says like he was doing his work and he looked outside his window and he saw a squirrel and he was, working on his computer. And then an image of Hawaii came up on the computer. And then he looked at the squirrel and he looked at the image of a depiction of Hawaii. And that was like a premonition. And so he says that he came, uh, he came to the islands because of the squirrel. Um, And the other thing that he said though, is that he noticed that there was a mega prison that was being built in the area that he was living Okay. And so, you know, this is the question about trauma and what people are leaving to come to the islands. So there was this squirrel and there was this image of Hawaii and he's like, I need to get out of here and go. But he said, you know, there was a a major prison that was being built. And in California and the, in the West coast, a lot of prisons were were built in the nineties. And and he was saying, you know, they're going to need to house this prison. And as a black man, he was not trying to be part of that. And so there's these particular structural forms of racism that inspire, particularly um, Black men in this case, to leave the continental U.S. and go somewhere familiar, but somewhere that's different. The fascinating thing about him is that for the first six months while he was in the island of Oahu, um, he chose to be houseless. He chose to live on the streets. And, you know, I was like, wow. And we had an interview that was not far from where he said was his spot, like outside the convention center. And I said, wow, did you know, and did you have any was was, I mean, what was that like? And he would hide his money in his shoe. And sometimes police would come and they would just kind of like kick him, not kick him hard, but like tap him with their feet and say, you got to keep it moving. And then he, you know. That's how he said he saved money. Uh, And so the last thing I'll say is that he finds that Hawaiian issues and the desire for Hawaiian sovereignty is very familiar to him because he feels that's the same kind of conversation that Native Americans are having uh, within his own community in the U.S. South and also in D.C., Uh, And he says, you know, Hawaii is an annex, just like Washington DC is. So what his story really illustrates is that you have this black man from the South who is finding an alternative to Hawaii. He's fleeing the prison, the rise of the prison industrial complex, Um, but he's black and Cherokee and he identifies as such. And he sees links between black folks and Hawaiians, but also Hawaiians and native Americans. Um, So I think is, these people are fascinating. Like, you know, we have so much to learn about, these connections and our, you know, our past, but also our political visions for the future that are very much based on broad scale solidarities, not on these siloed differences and competing forms of, you know, oppression or racism.
1: I'd like to also ask you about Amy and about Angel. Who are they? Can you tell us their stories? And can you Describe to us why they are special and unique.
0: I know Amy, and I think I remember who I referred to as Angel. This is the funny thing when you write and you're like, I don't, I know these people so, so intimately, but the names, I don't always connect with them. But I believe I know both of these folks. I know who I'm referring to. Amy was, oh, I can just picture her now. I interviewed her probably. Ten years ago, nine years ago, at the University of Hawaii campus center, this is you know a pre-COVID world. My goodness, and she is lovely. So she uh, is from the, the the East Coast, and she came to Hawaii. She's always liked Asian boys, and she likes Asian culture. Um, she's a fair skin. Black woman, she wore her hair as a natural, uh, you know, a natural, uh not processed hair. And she had freckles and she had light eyes. And, you know, Amy, I really wanted to open a chapter with her, but I think I integrated her her into the chapter she really highlighted for me um, her experience in Hawaii and something that she related to me. She really highlighted how black transplants who moved to Hawaii change over time because of Hawaiian practices of genealogy. So what I mean is that Amy said that when she first came to the islands, right, she had a friend who was local and he asked her, what are you? you know, you know, what are you? Uh, Which means like people sometimes say, Hey, what nationality you by which they mean, what is your ethnic background? What is your ancestry? And she was so offended, like none of your business, you know, what do you mean? And then also she was very much like, what do you mean? What am I obviously I'm black. And this is what a number of people said that they were asked by locals. What are you? And they were taken aback because you don't ask that. And B, can't you tell I'm black? And he said, you're, you're not only black, you're also other things. Right. And she said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I I have like other ancestry in me. I'm sure there's white and, and, you know, Native American. And he said, well, you should say all of those things. And she she realized that he was not being rude that in Hawaii, it is a very common practice to ask what high school did you go to and what are you? And these things socially and genealogically and geographically locate people. And so it's the opportunity in that asking for the person to explain all of their ancestries. And I think that this is, and so now she says when she's asked, what are you, she understands why people ask that, but she also now recounts all of her ancestries. She doesn't just say, just black. Uh and so that's why in in a chapter I talk about how in Hawaii there are expansive accounts of blackness by which the majority of black folks will when when asked will recount all of their ancestries. So it's black and Chinese, black and Japanese and what have you. Black and uh Cherokee and Scottish Irish, right? As opposed to just Black. Um, And I think that this can be very confounding for people In the continental U.S. where there's a really big debate possibly between folks who say if you're part black you should just say you're black and this really circulated around Obama when people were looking at the U.S. census and what why does he talk about his white family he doesn't he realize that if a police officer drives by him he's just black like it doesn't matter that he was raised by his white family and so there's this idea that if black folks Uh, account for all of their ancestries, that you're running away from Blackness. And what Amy realized was that it's not a running away, that when you say that you're Black and Cherokee and Irish, that it's highlighting the histories of these groups. It's not flattening them out. And it's not necessarily in the islands. It's not a desire to be anything but Black. So that's what um, was one of the points that Amy really illustrated was that in Hawaii, there was a Different approach to blackness um, and to being black and to multiracial, you know, multiracialism uh, over generations. Angel is super interesting. Uh, she is black and Mexican. Um, and she, you know, she accounts, she, you know, her story gives um, a really interesting example of Asian anti black racism in the islands. She's a professional, she moved to the islands as a student. And she went on to live there and became a professional and uh, in real estate. And she said, you know, it's very strange that, and another, another uh, uh, real estate agent, a black and white man that I talked to said the same thing that even after years of being in the real estate industry, they never had a Japanese client. And I think what happens is that we think of anti-black racism as mostly being housed within the United States, but anti-black racism emerges from the West of Hawaii as well from Asia. And so a lot of uh, experiences with racism happened um, faced by Angel and by, by a number of black locals uh, from Japanese teachers, from Filipino nurses, from you know, Japanese and, um, and white uh, judges. And so racism in Hawaii is not a white on black occurrence. So the vast majority of police officers in Hawaii are not white. It is a predominantly local, uh, which means Asian, mixed, Polynesian, Hawaiian police force. And police officers are members of many local people's families. And so the discussion about police abolition is not the same in Hawaii yet as it is here, though I hope it will get there. And so uh, policing is not the same look as BLM in which there are white police officers, predominantly, who are murdering black people. In Hawaii, a lot of racism takes place by Asian by, by Asian locals and by Asian, you know people from Asia who import anti-black racism within the justice system or the injustice system, within court rulings, within schooling. And the last thing I'll say about this is for instance, recently, a ten-year-old black girl. She was uh, in at her public school. She's ten years old, and she was handcuffed, and uh, her mother said that she was taken to. I think she was taken to the police. Uh, the police office. For drawing um, a drawing, for a drawing that they deemed dangerous. Gosh. And the mother was not allowed to see her. And so what I'm saying is that these are institutions uh, that are informed by racist practices that we need to contend with, which goes back to pedagogy. Hawaii, we have to contend with race as an analytic and racism as a structural issue in the islands. I'm talking so much, Ari, I'm so sorry. I'm just Ah, It's good to talk about it about, not about these things, but about the book and these issues. Yeah. It's
1: a privilege and a pleasure to listen. Yeah. How do Barack Obama, Janet, Janet mock and Dwayne, the rock Johnson embody the ambiguities of black Pacific
0: identity. Yeah, that's great. You know, Obama, um, took much more of a foreground in earlier iterations of my writing. You know, he really informed a lot of my thinking. Uh, And then I had him take a background because the others as over time, you know, the stories that I was learning of all these other folks, particularly people who are not an exceptional person like him, became really important. And these were people who were not part white. Remember, like, it's not that he was a president that I don't want to feature him. It's that I wanted to talk to mixed race people who were not part white. Um, but the interesting thing is Obama's story is very much reflected in the story of all the black locals that I spoke to, you know, they're mixed. They were often raised by their non-black parent. They often didn't have a very consistent, uh, interaction with black cultural life, you know, Um, they grew up as local kids, right? They formed black masculinity through hip hop or sports. So in a lot of ways, Obama is not exceptional. His local story is very much like the story of the people that I'm talking about who are from the islands. Um, Obama, who's black and white from Hawaii, went on to be the president. Janet Mock, who is um, a trans activist and Compelling author. Um, I teach her her memoir in my classes. She's Black Hawaiian. Uh, she was raised um, by her mom's family in Hawaii, and then she spent time with her Black father in Oakland, um, and then Dwayne Johnson, who's Black someone. Um, They're all very illustrative of Black life in in the Pacific because a lot of Black folks who are from the islands tend to be mixed and they tend to have moms who are from these places, right? And, you know, we're just thinking about various forms of diaspora, diasporas of um, the military, how these mothers meet the fathers, right? Um, So in a lot of ways, they are um, exceptional because they've become famous, these, these three figures but they're very reflective of, of these folks who I talk about uh, very reflective where they were often the only one or where um, being black did not frame every, every aspect of their lives in Hawaii being local did, or being part of their mother's families did. Right. And it was upon moving to the continental U S where these three, and also All of the folks that I talked to who had visited the continental U.S. said, "Okay, the continental U.S., right, Chicago, D.C., the state of California, that's where being black is. And because they were not familiar with that, a lot of black locals have an ambivalent relationship to blackness, not because they are self-hating or because of only internalized racism, but because they are not uh, they were not exposed growing up to black cultural life. And they didn't feel that they had right to access or state that they were black and they were raised by their non-black mothers, you know, so they identify as black Korean, black Okinawan, because like Obama, they were raised by their non-black parents, right. In, in this context.
1: You pay significant attention in, in a certain passage to the experiences of black professors at the university of Hawaii Um. Can you describe how they have been treated?
0: Yeah so I can see uh, very clearly um, the faculty that I met and 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 the particular history that especially in ethnic studies at the University of Hawaii um, that folks have had um, so so you know anyone can can do a little research and find out who these people are so it's not so much keeping pseudonyms as, What is happening at the University of Hawaii, where there's basically only one position that is there for an African-Americanist, which is very important, but only one. Um, And what is going on structurally with the University of Hawaii, where it doesn't have broad representation of Black faculty. It has very few Black students. Um, And mostly, you know, what it does is recruit uh, Black athletes for its sports team, right? How are we going to change um, the pedagogy and understanding in Hawaii about race and members of the African diaspora if we don't include and hire more people? people who study the Black diaspora. There are people who study race and who are experts on the African diaspora outside of the ethnic studies, African-Americanist position in sociology and history, uh, but it's just all too few. So for instance, um, if you look at a particular hire of an African-Americanist at the University of Hawaii, um, you know, in, in their history, they have not tenured one Black professor another Black professor left the islands because it didn't, they didn't, it didn't feel right. And then in the third case, you know, there is right now a Black professor there uh, who is filling that position, who, is, um, who studies Blackness in Okinawa and Blackness in the Pacific. So it's very important. They, they speak to local issues. But I want us to think about um, what would it mean to be right, Black faculty in a predominantly non-white state, a non-white place, Um, one black faculty member who was hired to teach um on the Black Diaspora, you know, explained their daily experiences. You know, people who worked at the restaurants on campus, not the restaurants, but you know, like whatever it might be a Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks or something, they never identified this person as a professor. It was like the impossibility of a black person being a scholar. Right. And they would also notice that in their exchanges with the service worker, the local the local service worker, that um, the service worker would never hand the, her change back in her hand. She would put it on the counter. And, you know, she uh, is attuned to, you know, racism and as a Black woman who grew up uh, in the continental U.S. And she's like, what's happening here? So she would watch that service worker in their, you know, monetary exchanges with the next customer who was not a Black person and saw that, oh, yes, she put the change in her hand. This is very reminiscent to sort of a lot of the conflicts that uh, had been simmering between Black, you know clients uh, and, and Korean store owners in Los Angeles, right? That sort of led to the 1992 uprisings, these sort of, um, you know, Asian anti-Black racism that you notice that people had said, Black customers in these stores said, they're marking up prices. They don't treat us like people. They watch us in the store because they think we're thieves and they don't hand the money into our hands. They put it on the counter. They don't want to touch us, right? So she was realizing- she was realizing that in Hawaii, it's not that different. It's not a haven. It's, you know, and, and there's not a real strong black community. So the other thing that I want to kind of pivot to also is that some of these professors are parents and a lot of black professionals are parents, right? And they have to make the choice for those who are not from the, from Hawaii So folks who come to Hawaii, who have a strong racial consciousness, and they grew up understanding African American history, they identify as Black, they come to Hawaii, and if they raise children, whether they're mixed kids or not, raising Black children in Hawaii, it's a very difficult process, they say, to instill Black pride into that child, because you could do that within the household, but Blackness is invisible otherwise in the school context or in a friend group. So how do you raise a child with a strong black consciousness and pride in a context of black invisibility? So on the flip side of Hawaii is my Haven is not only structural racism that I'm talking about from the Massey cases and the DB cases um, and the calling being called the N word, but also an absence and invisibility that can become too much and the, um, the requirements of being a black person in Hawaii can be too much for people where it really requires you to give up your racial consciousness and give up those strong cultural bonds of, of, of black community. Um, you know, there's not a lot of black, you know, like soul food restaurants. Um, you have to give that up in order to be seen as local. And for some people, As this guy, Devin from Miami said, Hawaii knows how to spit people out. So for some folks, it just doesn't sit well. They have to give up too much in order to be considered local. So they return to the continental US where they can be among black community. And this goes back to like the emotional part of the book that I was talking about. I mean, all of it's emotional to me, not trauma so much but there's like a heavy sadness about what it requires in any place in society, in any society. What does it require some people to give up and what does it enable? Right. So one person said, you know, he was from, he's from, he's from Los Angeles and he's identifiably black and he had a beautiful Afro. And he told me he actually has a Japanese grandparent, although he never says that because nobody ever asks outside of Hawaii. Um, He said, you know, in Hawaii, I don't have to wake up every day and remind myself, okay, I'm black. How am I going to act? How do I have to dress? What do I have to watch out for? And another black man said, you know, it's easy to get really comfortable in Hawaii, but I have to keep up my keep my shoulders tight. Because what if I return to the continental U.S.? I can't get I can't forget to like remember to look over my shoulder. So there's this relief, but there's also this invisibility. There's not having to be people's perceptions of Blackness or Black, not to perform that all the time, but then there's not the ability to perform it without being questioned because people don't understand the context and the clues. So it's a little vexed. It's complicated.
1: Can you comment on the phenomenon of anti-Micronesian racism in Hawaii? In what ways is it different from anti-Black racism? And in what ways is it similar?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, anti-Micronesian racism has been getting more attention, which I think is really critical. And I think any analysis of race can can uh, amplify the structural ways that and the everyday ways the everyday racism that Micronesians face in Hawaii. Um, so Micronesians are displaced um, from their homelands in a lot of ways because of U.S. imperialism in Micronesia that has turned islands into, you know, military outposts and has, and there's, you know, nuclear testing. And so there are waves of people who are forced away from their homelands in other parts of the Pacific. And we have to remember that, you know, Pacific people don't necessarily think of themselves all the time in colonial divisions of Polynesian, Micronesian and Melanesians, right? There's modes of seafaring and cultural exchange and linguistic similarities that unite people in the Pacific and the Pacific is huge. I think it covers one-fifth of the earth, right? It's huge. And someone recently beautifully called it the blue continent. And I don't know the citation to that, so folks should Google it. But um, So the, the Pacific is united, and it's also divided in so many different ways. And there's a way that European colonial divisions of the Pacific, along with modes of anti-Black racism, um, dovetail in the experience of Micronesians in Hawaii. Many of them come from traumatic uh, uh, for, from traumatic experiences and backgrounds and come to the islands where they feel they are not properly received through proper protocol, where you would receive your cousins, your Pacific cousins. And so one guy, Devin, uh, from Miami, he works with... Um, he works with a number of um, these folks, these, these migrants, these refugees, and he, they, they mention a sadness that they, are, they face so much harassment, and they're called monkey, they're seen as backward, they're seen as uncultured, they're seen as um, taking away state resources. So a lot of the same discourses that in the United States we use and apply toward refugees, right? Towards Southeast Asian refugees and other refugees is the same kind of discourses that are happening toward Micronesians who are getting racialized in the way that we might expect Melanesians who are considered dark or Black Pacific Islanders to be. Anti-Micronesian sentiment is like a lot of racist sentiment in Hawaii in that it takes place not just white on anti-Micronesian, but Hawaiians, Asians, you know, school systems, court systems that will give them higher sentences that depict a Micronesian man with a darker face than he actually has and applies stereotypes of criminality and backwardness. So Micronesians are experiencing forms of anti-Black racism that actually emanate from the European encounter with Africa, but that can be attached to different bodies. Right. And so Micronesians, uh, the thing that I think is important to note is the presence of anti-Micronesian racism that overlaps with or shares the same logics as anti-Black racism. The issue, though, is that when folks say that Micronesians are the Black people of Hawaii, what it does is it actually erases Black people of Hawaii. So I think there is this presumption that there are no Black people, meaning members of the African diaspora, in the islands. Um, And a way to kind of um, address this is not by an either or, but I think by seeing exactly as your question is asking that um, European and American modes of anti-black racism that stem from enslavement and the plantation era in the US South, right? They travel across the ocean and get picked up locally by non-white folks Um, and they get, uh, you know, glued to and stuck onto other bodies. Uh, and these consequences can sometimes be fatal as we've seen, uh, recently with the the police murder of, uh, I remember Psycap, who was a 16 year old Micronesian boy who, uh, was in a car and got shot multiple times by a police officer from behind, Um, so, you know, so I think the other thing though, is that we don't have to say that Micronesians are the black people of Hawaii, but we can, we can see how forced displacement U S imperialism, right. Anti-black racism, um, you know, reactions to refugees. These are intersecting and distinct kinds of experiences, whatever you want.
1: One scholar who has made a significant contribution to thinking about the Black Pacific is the historian Kito Swan, who has written about the relationship between Oceania and Black internationalism. Where do you situate your contribution to the Black Pacific in relation to his and other scholars' work on the Black Pacific?
0: Thanks for asking this question. I am, you know, I'm really intrigued by this growing field or subfield um, and the scholarship and the work that uses this term, the Black Pacific. Um, And, you know, you read the title of my book. It's Hawaii is my haven race and indigeneity in the Black Pacific. Um, And Robbie Shilliam is a scholar who has written a book called The Black Pacific. And he looks at blackness and iterations of blackness in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And Robbie uh, and Kito Swan is another scholar who is contributing to this really exciting conversation. So um, my I've crossed paths with Kito and I can't wait to talk to him more. We were on a discussion panel where I got to hear him talk about his work. Uh, And I think our work really um, is in great conversation. Quito is phenomenal for his breadth of knowledge of the Pacific. So he, you know, he's looking at activism and and, and the the traversing of these various spaces around the globe um, and the connections between um, vast geographies. Whereas my study is a very deeply local study of one, basically one Island. Right. And so, whereas, uh, and I think that those two kind of, um, speak to one another where he can trace the vast movements of politics, you know, of the political ideologies uh, and individuals who have shaped Pacifica, uh, um, politics and movements. Uh, I think that gives us a really helpful analysis of the black diaspora. Uh, and then, in con you know in contribution to that is my ethnographic account right a deeply local specific one that is attuned to the geography and topography of the island of Oahu um, and the words and the lives of black folks and so to that end I'll just say that you know now that the book is out you know it's taken 10 years of research and a long term of writing and Kito Swan's book is coming out um I think that this kind of, you know, more of these books is gonna bring attention to, to a really understudied aspect of, of black studies, which is the Pacific. And secondly, I think Kito's work and my work, along with others like um, Gerald Horn's amazing work, um, what it also does is it provides a paradigm of the importance of a black studies and race race analysis for Pacifica scholars to pick up, to understand, right? life in the Pacific.
1: Can you tell us about the process of researching, editing, and writing this book that you personally went through in regard to adversities or challenges that changed you as a person to the extent that you feel comfortable? Can you tell the story of any hardship you encountered during the journey of this book? How did you cope with it? What did you learn? What does it tell us about you as a person?
0: Oh, Ari, with the good questions. I I like that. I like that question because first it was so big. And then it was like, turn to that. It turned left. And it was like, what hardship did I face? Writing is fucking hard. I mean, it's the hardest part of my job. Uh, You know, they say that professors, they do service work, uh, they teach classes, and then they do research and writing. And writing is so hard. There's so many feelings that go into it. And yet, if we want to publish something, we have to kind of silence those feelings of imposter syndrome, of the chaos, of the disorganization of the material, of the questions about the structure of how you're going to tell the story, uh, of the questions about is this smart enough? Is it obvious? Did I make a mistake? You have to quell those things in order to actually get the writing done, but they never go away, right? And then, even after the book comes out, it feels like nobody's reading it. And then when people read it, you're like, oh shit, what are they going to say about it? So, you know, it's this whole, it's very emotional. Uh, I would say that, oh gosh, this book has been the process of the book, not the book itself, but all the people that I spoke to, it has not been difficult. It has been a gift. People sharing their stories, you know, people kind of diss in the academy, people are sort of dissing social sciences uh, and ethnography as inherently colonial, which is why I left the discipline of anthropology. And I consider myself an ethnic studies scholar, but, you know, not all interviews in social science is only extractive uh, and abusive or, you know, in that dynamic. Um, And I don't think we only need to turn to history and dead people or to books and science fiction. I think we can take the time to talk to living humans. And it's hard. It's really hard because you're going to tell their stories. And then I shared any parts of the book that was about someone that I named. I cut and pasted it like Kamaka Kehao, who's on the cover. I cut and pasted any part that I used his name and and described him and quoted him and gave it to him and said, do you want to edit this? Do you want me to take anything out? You know, so that's a collaborative, ideally ethical mode of doing this kind of research, right? And you tell the story, but also as an ethnographer, you're not just telling the story. You have to analyze it. And maybe I got it wrong, you know, or maybe people don't like what they read, but maybe they do. So what's been happening is after publication, I've been giving these talks on Zoom um, and people show up and you don't know who's going to show up. There might be, you know, racist, you know, Zoom bombing, but what's been fascinating is that like, I remember I gave a talk once on Zoom and this woman, you know, said, I don't know you, you know, you didn't interview me, but I'm a black woman from the big Island of Hawaii. And she said, I just feel so seen like you're, what you're telling me about these people's stories is my story. I, I understand everything that you're saying. And she had never been represented, let alone in a book length ethnography, right? There, this is the only book length ethnography of black people in the Pacific, So what I think I'm kind of skirting over your answer is that this has been 10, 12 years now of research. And it includes it started from when my dad first introduced me to the second person I ever interviewed, which is a black nurse in Hawaii who gave me the title. She said, Hawaii is my haven from that time that I interviewed her and my dad died shortly thereafter. That was very difficult. And then from when I had my first child and I was pregnant and doing research across the islands. That was very difficult to um, contending with the realities of black lives matter and going home to Hawaii and talking to people who felt very distant from that to the agonizing process of writing to COVID and the pandemic and finalizing the manuscript and really changing the entire opening that I used. The opening used to feature the words of Obama and W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King Jr. That was like my introduction for for years. I thought that was the way I was going to open the story of Black life in the Pacific. But instead, I flipped it at the last minute and I featured these Black women and Black women activists in Hawaii who are doing really amazing work around Black Lives Matter. And so the whole, you know, the way that life's events, whether it was the death of my father or me having a child and then two children and doing research alongside because it was such a long process, a decade long process and world events like these kind of relentless murders of black people. I live in Chicago, you know, and these are realities. They're not abstractions Um, to then going home and doing the actual fieldwork and feeling guilty about am I taking from people? And then in the writing process, how do I do their stories justice? And did I fuck it up or, or did I do it justice? And how is this helping? Is this my kuleana, right? Did I fulfill one aspect of my kuleana, my responsibility? And I feel, I feel like I did the best that I could. And I feel, I feel good about that, but it's not over. Just like anti-racist organizing, anti-imperialism and decolonization is not over. This is not over.
1: In your acknowledgments, you convey gratitude to your husband, Makaya and your parents, Miriam and Jagdish. Would you like to tell us about them? And to the extent that you feel comfortable, what are some character virtues that you admire in the three of them, respectively?
0: Oh, see, now you're going to make me cry. This whole interview has been like, whew. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this is the second solo authored book that I wrote. And I think the first book that I wrote, my acknowledgements were, uh, I love reading acknowledgements, but it's the last thing that m- many authors write. Like I keep a running list, especially cause it was 10 years. I probably forgot people. So in my first book, I forgot to thank my editor Courtney Berger. And this time I remembered to thank Courtney Berger. Um, But in this one, you know, usually you read uh, academic acknowledgements and they acknowledge their family members last, you know, last but not least to the person who helped me through this all. And then they name their children and their and their partners. So I started my acknowledgements by thanking my partner and my children because it's been a ride. Um, Oh, I'm going to get emotional. So. My father's Jagdish Sharma and he, I named him and he died in the beginning stages of this um, project. You've Okay. I'm going to get myself together. So he was, uh, you know, he's a professor and he was just, he was a matchmaker. He made, he arranged 27 international marriages, no divorces. Wow. He's a professor. He came from a small village in India He has exchanged the cigarette with Obama. He was known as the mayor of Manoa. He's a really special person and just a big gossip and chatterbox. And I get a lot of those qualities from him, you know, just a people person. My mother, she's 81. She's a retired professor from the University of Hawaii. And she's a badass. She's no-nonsense Brooklyn Jew. She's a tough teacher, she's a tough mom, and she's really whip smart. And she's someone I aspire to be like, you know, her her political fierceness is something I try to channel uh, in my work. So those are the things that I think about when I think about my parents. My husband's Micaiah, Micaiah, um, he, we say Micaiah like papaya when people ask her how to pronounce his name. You know, he is, um, he's mixed like I am. You know, his mom is Eastern European Jew, just like my mom. His dad is African-American and my dad is Indian. And we just have a lot of things in common. And it's been kind of amazing to be able to share the writing of this work. Like with him, he'll never read the book. He barely ever attends any of my things. He's not the adoring partner in that way, which I kind of like. Um, But on the other hand, I think I've learned a lot from him. Because he's an artist who works outside of any institutional formats, right? Like he doesn't have his own health insurance. He doesn't have a regular paycheck. And he is therefore not beholden to people or norms uh, or expectations in the way that a professor is writing scholarly academic books. Right. And so, um, he, you know, in his, in his world and his life as a musician, uh, he offers a different model to remind me that you can do things on your own terms, but it's very risky and I'm not that big of a risk taker. And the last thing I'll say is we connect in a lot of ways because, um, you know, he's the child of musicians and he's a musician, and I'm the child of academics, and I'm an academic. And I think that way, we kind of come together in raising our kids to be exposed to all kinds of things, you know, they are black and Hungarian and Jewish and Indian, Russian Jewish and Indian. And they are very fortunate to be global citizens. And that's like, and they see the connections between their black grandparents and their Indian grandparent, you know, and they see that they're Russian Jewish grandmother kind of is like their Hungarian Jewish grandmother. And they've been to places around the world, including India and Japan and Hawaii. And that's kind of a goal that I have in this book too, is I think like my dad, I try to make connections. And like my mom, those connections are about seeing and seeding out inequality. And I think like my husband It's an attempt, always failed on my part, to do it with like a pure generosity of spirit and humility and always thinking the best of people. I don't have that spirit, but I think that's kind of what I take from all of them.
1: Is there anyone else that you pay homage to in your acknowledgments who specifically stand out? who you would like to speak about in their role assisting you in this project?
0: Oh, now I feel like it's like an Oscar speech, except I'm an atheist. So I cannot thank God. Um, oh, gosh, I mean, of course, all the people who shared their stories with me. I mean, hundreds of people. My goodness, absolutely. Uh, and, and I and I love talking about their stories. I had writing groups with with national networks of girlfriends that have been so important. So no, really, it it really is um, two things. One is all the people who shared their stories with me in Hawaii, and the second is the scholars and the political activists who are scholars who I've really learned from so much, um, both in Hawaii and in Black Studies, um, and in Asian American Studies, and Native Studies. And so it's the pulling together of all of these things. So I'm just, you know, I'm very grateful for all of the the thinkers, and the doers, um, and the sharers that I've come across over the last decade.
1: How did you locate and select the individuals that you interviewed, and what were the unique challenges that you faced as a scholar by working with individual personal narratives?
0: Yeah, I'm very familiar with working with individual narratives because this was not my first ethnography. You know, my dissertation was an ethnography. Um and um and so in the first book that I wrote uh Hip Hop Dacies, I had to handle individual stories and those folks were not there were no pseudonyms. So again, the care the care of it um the care with people's stories was very important. Um, the way that i that i selected people for this project is because i'm from hawaii you know it's very it's a different model than a traditional anthropologist who goes to culture very far away and exotic and studies the other and has to get to know people and establish themselves i certainly had to do that but i was very familiar with local references and people so i used my networks I racially profiled, you know, anytime I saw someone who I thought was a Black person uh, who did not look like they were in the military, I would try to talk to them as difficult as that is uh, in going up to somebody. Um, A lot of high school friends and and family members said, oh, you should meet so-and-so, you know, and I had a long Excel list of hundreds of people that I should reach out to. And so it was really a collaborative, um, effort. And, um, one of the things that I'm most excited about as we wind down here is just bringing a lot of this work back home to Hawaii. So giving talks at the university of Hawaii, getting to see a lot of the people that I interviewed in person, giving them and mailing them my book, uh, which is their book. Um, that's been really, really wonderful.
1: As we bring this dialogue to a close, um, do you mind sharing what you are working on next as your current or subsequent project?
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Ari, for asking that. I mean, writing this book was so hard. Uh, And I said, I'm not going to write another book. But what I am winding down on uh, this year are two things. And then I'll mention a third project. Uh, I am a co-editor of uh, a short Um, edited volume called Who is the Asianist? And this is about the politics of representation and blackness in Asian studies. So this is sponsored through the Association for Asian Studies. It's having a conference um, this month in the month of March uh, next, oh, tomorrow, this week that I'm going to in Hawaii. Um, So that's one thing is, is, and that's outside of my area, but it's really thinking about some of the questions that you've asked about uh, the resonance of a study of black folks in diaspora to area studies. Um, the second thing that I'm working on is finishing up with my dear friend and collaborator, Jenna Kim, a co-edited uh, special journal. And this is bringing together, cause I'm a connector like my father, a matchmaker, bringing together Pacific Island studies with trans-Pacific studies. So I'm very interested in bringing these fields together whether it's um, mixed race studies and black studies, or in this case, Trans-Pacific Studies and Pacific Island Studies. That, those both will be coming out this year. The last big project that I have coming f- um, forward now is I really wanna bring together scholars who are working on the Black Pacific and make some sort of combined volume to just sort of trace the genealogy of the way that the term the Black Pacific has been used Already, whether it's by Gerald Horn or Robbie Shillian or Quito, uh, whether it's by folks on the Western part of Latin America, right, or within Hawaii or in Australia and West Papua, or if it's about Uh, the Black Pacific in Asia. How are scholars across disciplines using this term? I want to kind of bring a volume together to chart that. And then I think I will continue to do research across the Pacific beyond Hawaii to look at sort of the resonance and meanings of Blackness across the Pacific as it's experienced ethnographically today.
1: Thank you. That will be an amazing contribution when it is out and when it is available.
0: Thank you so much, Ari. You're so thoughtful. And I really, really enjoyed your your questions and appreciate how carefully you read the book. It really, really means a lot to me.
1: Thank you. It was my privilege and my honor. Thank you. As we bring this dialogue to a close, uh, I have been your host today on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat with New Books in African-American Studies. I have been in dialogue with Natasha Tamar- Sharma, professor of African-American studies and Asian-American studies at Northwestern University. We have been discussing her new book, Hawaii is My Haven, Race and Indigeneity in the Black Pacific, published by Duke University Press 2021. Thank you wholeheartedly.
0: Thank you.